Hello, and welcome to the podcast for 613. This message was given by Danny Strange. Okay, Jesus was dead. Judas was dead. Peter had denied Jesus three times. And the rest of Jesus' disciples, they'd all disappeared. They'd all hid in fear and humiliation. This is not the kingdom the disciples had imagined. You see, the Jewish people, God's people, were waiting for their promised Messiah to come. And this promised Messiah, he was going to come and he was going to redeem the Jewish people. And then his kingdom, in his kingdom, he was going to reign over all people. This ultimate and perfect king was going to come and they could not wait because the Jewish people were in and out of oppression. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and now this powerful empire called Rome. But rumors the Messiah was now among God's people began to spread as John the Baptist came onto the scene 2,000 years ago. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And as John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, the one who's going to take away the sins of the people. This is the one I was talking about. This is God's chosen one. Could it be? Could this be the promised Messiah? Is this the one, the ultimate and perfect king who would set everything right for God's people? Jesus chose 12 disciples, and these 12 men went on an amazing adventure for these three years that they followed Jesus around. Uh, They saw Jesus calm storms. They saw him walk on water. They watched as Jesus healed blind men and deaf men and lame men and dead men. Jesus out-taught and outsmarted the brightest religious leaders of the day, which created a building jealousy and fear as these men felt as if their religious system, their tradition, and their power was being threatened. Jesus loved the outcast. He loved the sick. He loved the children. And Jesus loved the sinners. He claimed to forgive sins, and he claimed to give these people eternal life. And the crowds grew and they grew. Jesus even multiplied a few fish and some bread that a kid gave him uh, to feed these crowds of thousands of people. And when they saw him do this, they all said to themselves, This is the guy who's been promised. This is the Messiah who is to come into the world. We need to make him king. This is more like the kingdom the disciples had imagined. A massive Jewish festival uh, called Passover had Jerusalem packed to the brim with its nation's people. The crowds heard Jesus was on his way into the city and they met him with palm branches and they ran out to him and they began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. Some of the religious leaders in the crowd, they said to Jesus, you need to rebuke him. But Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is more like the kingdom the disciples had imagined. It's time to start this revolution. It's time to follow our king into battle against our oppressors. Like a lion, we're going to pounce on our enemies. It's time for war. It's time for victory. It's time for glory. And it's time for this kingdom to come. But this campaign took a turn. According to Jewish tradition, it was the day on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. 
The disciples found themselves in the upper room celebrating the Passover that evening. But this Passover celebration, it was a lot different from all the previous Passover celebrations they'd experienced together and celebrated before. This one was eerie. And the disciples, they felt it. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover dinner with you before I suffer, Jesus said. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Around this table, a dispute arose among the disciples about who would be the greatest in the kingdom among them. And Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I am among you as one who serves, Jesus said. And that night, Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. And like a servant, washed each of his disciples' feet. Matthew, to James, to Thomas, to Peter, and to Judas. Now that I, your teacher, and Lord have washed your feet, you also, you also should wash one another's feet. And that night, Jesus told his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. Judas had already struck a deal with the religious leaders, 30 pieces of silver to hand Jesus over to them while there was no crowd present. Judas left the meal to meet Jesus' enemies to prepare for the betrayal. And Jesus told his disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, Jesus, I never will. But Jesus answered, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you would disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the rest of the disciples, they said the exact same thing as Peter. But sadly, it unfolded exactly as Jesus had just said. Because of the deal Judas made with the religious leaders, Jesus was quietly arrested in the cover of night. The disciples fled in fear. During Jesus' mock trial, Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. And Peter, realizing what he had just done, he went away and he wept bitterly. Judas went to the religious leaders and tried to give back this blood money that he took, but the religious leaders, they wouldn't take it back. And so Judas throws the money into the temple. He goes away and he hangs himself from a tree. Jesus was also hung on a tree, not hanged by a rope like Judas, but by nails, a much more slow and painful death. This was the Roman style of execution. A week ago, Jerusalem was proclaiming Jesus their king, and now here they are crucifying him, mocking him, and spitting on him. However, Jesus, while he looked out from the cross on this horrific scene, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And like a Passover lamb, Jesus was innocently executed. Jesus was dead. Peter had just denied Jesus three times. Judas was dead. Jesus' disciples were scattered and hiding in humiliation and fear. This is not the kingdom the disciples had imagined. Jesus' body was pulled down from the cross. It was locked in a tomb in a Jerusalem garden. A big stone was rolled in front of the entrance, and Roman guards were placed in front of it to make sure no one stole the body. 
As Jesus' body was locked in that tomb, the disciples also locked themselves behind doors, inside rooms, in fear that the same thing that happened to Jesus might happen to them. For three days, this reality of Jesus' death sunk into the disciples. All his miracles, all his teachings, all that time, had it all gone to waste? How could this be the Messiah who's going to rule God's kingdom? This is not the kingdom the disciples had imagined. We humans hate death. What a horrible curse that our sin has brought upon us. And, the, and these disciples wanted nothing more than to have their friend back. But the sobering reality sunk in that things would never ever be the same again. And they would never ever be the same again. Because on the morning of that third day, that sun rose up. And on the morning of that Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave. Roman soldiers standing guard outside Jesus' tomb were eyewitnesses of the greatest miracle in history. There was a violent earthquake. An angel came down, rolled back this stone in front of the tomb, sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid, they shook and they fell down like dead men. At dawn, oblivious to what had just happened, some of the women went uh, to look at the tomb. And the angel said to them, as they saw him, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. Dreams of the Messiah came flooding back as the woman ran, fearful yet filled with joy, to tell the disciples this news. And suddenly Jesus appeared before them, and they came up and they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the disciples. But the disciples did not believe these women because the words that were coming out of their mouths just seemed like nonsense. But Peter and John, they got up and they ran to the tomb to go explore it for themselves. And they saw the empty tomb, just as the women had said. And they went away, wondering to themselves what was happening. That day, two men were walking a few miles away from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they were talking, Jesus came up and began walking alongside of them, and they did not recognize him. What are you discussing, Jesus asked. They stopped walking. You could tell that they were sad. You could tell by their faces that they were downcast. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asked. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But, he hoped, but we hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. It is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. When these men arrived at their destination, they urged Jesus to stay with them and to eat with them. And so Jesus uh, stayed with them. And and as they sat down at the table, Jesus grabbed bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And as he was handing it out to them, their eyes were opened and saw Jesus for who he really was. And at that point, Jesus disappeared from their sight. And these two men rushed back to Jerusalem, found the disciples and spilled out their incredible afternoon. It is true, the Lord has risen And this tiny flicker of hope grew in the disciples' hearts that possibly Jesus was out there somewhere, alive. Without warning, while they were still talking about Jesus, Jesus shows up in this room with them. They were startled and frightened for they they thought they saw a ghost. Look at my hands and feet. It's me, 
touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. Jesus proved his identity by showing the scars from his death. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw that it was their Lord. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And all those foggy teachings of Jesus began to come into focus. I am the Lamb of God. I will tear down this temple in three days and raise it again. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. I lay down my life only to take it up again. And the disciples looked back and everything began to make sense. And they saw Jesus was in control the whole entire time. This was the mission. This was the campaign. This is the kingdom. And the disciples were completely transformed. Eleven fearful men who had deserted Jesus at his death now became fearless evangelists who went to martyrs' graves declaring their faith in a resurrected Messiah. These few witnesses set loose a movement, a force that would outlast the Roman Empire. Jesus has risen. Jesus is alive. What else could explain the whiplash in these men from cowards hiding behind locked doors to fearless followers of Jesus proclaiming he has risen from street corners and jail cells? This was not the kingdom the disciples had imagined. No, this kingdom was beyond their wildest imagination and this kingdom is way beyond our wildest imaginations. This is a kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. A kingdom where the king lays down his life to save his people A kingdom where the king forgives those who denied him, betrayed him, abandoned him, and killed him. A kingdom where sins are forgiven. A kingdom where grace, not the law, reigns. A kingdom where its doors are open to the lost and to the sick and to the children. A kingdom where those who mourn are comforted, where the meek inherit the earth, where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, where the merciful are shown mercy, where the pure in heart see God, where the peacemakers are called children of God. A kingdom where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where there will be no more pain, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying. A kingdom where we are adopted by God as his sons and his daughters. A kingdom where the old order of things is passing away because Jesus is making everything new. A kingdom where God dwells among his people. A kingdom where we will be God's people and God himself will be with us and be our God. A kingdom that is eternal. Unlike Rome, unlike the United States, this is not a kingdom that is a mist. It is a kingdom that is eternal. A kingdom that is led by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We do not worship a dead man. We follow a living and a victorious king. This is our king and this is our kingdom. On Palm Sunday, as Jesus entered into the holy city, people cried out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they wanted to crown Jesus as their king and usher him onto his throne in the temple of God where he would rule over God's people. And yet when Jesus died on Good Friday, it was to the people's dismay because their king Their king didn't ascend to the throne. He descended to the grave. And what the people didn't understand on that Palm Sunday and what they didn't understand on that Good Friday was that Jesus was not ascending to his throne in Jerusalem yet because Jesus' throne was in heaven 
and because Jesus had not yet conquered his enemy. Jesus would be a silly king to ascend to a throne without conquering the enemy of God's people yet. They assumed he would come and sit on the throne and conquer the enemy of Rome and conquer the worldly enemies in this world, but Jesus had a bigger enemy in mind. Jesus came into the holy city. He turned over the tables. He twisted everything around, and then he descended into the grave and conquered the enemy of death. When Jesus rose on Sunday morning, he emerged from beating death and slaughtering death on behalf of God's people, and now he was ready to ascend to his throne, not in Jerusalem, but his throne in heaven. And so 40 days after the resurrection, as the disciples stood with Jesus and said, is this now the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the dates and the times that the Father has set forth by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. The Bible tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and began to rule over the heavens and the earth. The book of Acts, which we'll open tonight in a few minutes, tells the story of what it looked like when that kingdom started to emerge into the world. When the kingdom of God started to break through into the kingdoms of this earth, when Jesus' reign began and the world started to turn upside down. But before we dive into that, we have a special treat tonight. We've got a man who came last year, if you guys were here. How many of you guys were here when Daryl came and spoke last year from Emblaze, Cuba? We asked him to come and share a little bit tonight of the work that God is doing, the the way that Jesus is ushering in his kingdom into the land of Cuba. And uh, so we are so grateful to have Daryl with us tonight to tell us about the kingdom of God and the kingdom work in Cuba. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. I just uh, got back from my, I guess, 111th trip. And I was able to take my wife with me. Uh, We did a marriage seminar and took a group in from Houston, had so much fun. And these guys said, we want to go where normal uh, North Americans don't go. And I said, okay, let's hang together and we'll go up in the mountains in a place called Mayasi, which is the area where they deal the drugs in Cuba. And so it's way up in the mountains, remote, and you need an animal to get down there. Um, Mule helps, a horse is okay. but uh, So it's really hard to reach. So anyway, I thought... I haven't been there for years and I want to go, so these guys will be my excuse. So we went and we took this rental car, praise God for rental cars, and uh, we went into an area called um, Ma, uh, Mandinga. It's, an, it's part of the Cuban uh, native Indian tribe that's been totally wiped out. And it's way up in the mountains in a, an area of Cuba close to Maya Sea. So as we're trucking in there with this vehicle, every time we'd hit a rock and, and high ground the car, I'd say, praise God, it's a rental car. And we were going up there and I said, when we bring this thing back, we better wash it really good. <laughs> because my deductible on this is about $300, so I'm willing to waive that. But we got into this remote, remote area of Cuba. We had had 15 pastors come down and we just said, tell your story. We want to hear your story. What's God doing through your ministry? And so much, in so many of the cases, they're, they're experiencing tremendous darkness. Christ came to take captivity captive. He came to take whatever's got a hold on your life and take it captive and, and have dominion over it. 
That's what the, that's what the resurrection did. Death couldn't hold him. Uh, whatever, um, whatever addiction couldn't hold him, he led captivity captive. And so I said, tell me your story. We met this man, this pastor, up in Mandinga, and he said, when the Spanish came, this place was called Mandinga, which means house of the devil. And so as we went, they said we had to pray for, uh, we had to pray for close to two months, over 40 days, that the spirit of this place would be broken. So as we went in there, the house, the, they had established a church up there uh, close to 80 years before. Take a wild guess what they named the church. Bethel, or Bethel in Spanish, which means house of God. So in the house of the devil, they've established the house of God. And as they began to build up this house, they began to reach um, some of the aged of the community that had been totally plunged into Santeria, which is spiritism and witchcraft. And uh, unless you bind the strong man, the house, you, you can't enter into the house. So it's binding the strong man. The strong man in that area was spiritism, witchcraft. And that whole, that whole area had a, uh, had a heaviness upon it because of the practice of Santeria. And so uh, as they went into that area, they just they dedicated the workers to God. Then they began to claim that village and claimed that they established a church and in 2012, October, they had a visit by um, Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy destroyed the church. And so as we went up there, we went as far as we could. And after the, uh, after the last, uh, we were about maybe a mile and a half away from the church, high ground. We couldn't take our vehicle any further. We decided to walk. And it had rained and we were up to our ankles in mud, and we arrived there, and the pastor had no clue we were going to arrive because we had met him the day before, but the group we went in wanted to see the church. We went in there, and here he had brought together some leadership, and they had been praying and asking God what they were going to do with their destroyed church. The government had banned it. The building was leaned over so far that they had to get stakes, and uh, it cut the branches off trees and put the trees in place so that the thing wouldn't totally collapse. And they had cleared out a piece of land, but they said, okay, we've expended our resources, Lord, where's yours? And so when we showed up, we showed up with, um, we just showed up to, to interview the pastor and, and take some photos. And um, we said, what's your greatest need? God has supplied everything. He said, we have no need. And I said, well, it looks like you need a church. <laughs> he said, well, we know God's going to supply. And you know what? My favorite thing is being somebody's best day to be the answer to their prayers. And he was humble enough he wasn't asking. And he said, we've got two workers. They're going to strip down the trees. We're going to use, we're going to use wano, which is uh, kind of like a palm frond for the roof. We're going to build up the church. We just need a little bit of lumber. How much is it going to cost? And they figured it's going to cost about $800. And so we said, you know what? We got it covered. What else do you need? And uh, he wasn't offering anything. And I said, well, what do you do for transportation? I walk. And uh, in, in, uh, in Cuba, they say, uh, las mulas de dos piernas, the mule of two legs, which means your own legs. 
And so he says, I use a mule of two legs, you know, in other words, I walk. And I said, well, what do you need? Do you need a bike? And he said, bike's no good up here. He said, we've got four churches that we've planted up in the mountains. And the bike won't even get on most of those trails. And we need a mule. And guess what? This morning, the Morales family supplied that mule. And they named it after their son. So <laughs> there's, uh, there's, there's, um, they decided to supply three mules. They, uh, and uh, Mr. Morales named one after his wife. And <laughs> one after each of his kids. So praise God, that prayer is answered. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Amen. And they were just rejoicing. His wife was crying. I love seeing women cry. Over with joy, of course. (laughs) Don't like to be the cause of it. (laughs) And so she was crying, so we said, you know what? God sent us here. We didn't plan to come here. We've got a a vehicle that's not a four-wheel drive that's about a mile and a half, two miles down the road, and we're hoping it can get back, and uh, it did. But, you know, just to be the answer to their prayer. Let me tell you one more story. Um, a number of years ago, I heard the story of a, of a young boy who, at 18, lived in the province of Guantanamo, where you have a military base. I've been there from the Cuban side, looking down upon it, from a Cuban military installation about four times. Now they won't allow me up there. <laughs> but to see that military base and Guantanamo City is just outside on the other side of, a, of one of the world's largest minefields. And to see that military base, this young 18-year-old was born into a family of santeros, spiritists, witchcraft. And Santeria is it's a syncretism of the Catholic saints with the African gods, and they're dedicated to literally Satan worship. And it's um, in their year of purification, they dress all in white and they dedicate them themselves. They have all these, all these rituals they go through, like when they enter a house, they knock on a coconut for, for uh, safety and, and uh, they do animal rituals. They have another one where they will drill three areas in their head. Then they will exhume the body of a virgin in the cemetery take the bones of a virgin girl and make them into a powder and mix it with blood. I mean, it's, the ritual is horrendous. But there's power in it. And so they have all these things for control and power. And this family had dedicated themselves to that. They had people from voodoo, from the black arts in Africa and Central America, all come to worship at their home. So this 18-year-old boy walking in Guantanamo was raised in that environment. Grandparents, uh, parents, all dedicated to Santeria. And as he's walking in Guantanamo, he hears, hears this celebration, this singing, this exaltation of a different spirit. And it's young people. And so he's drawn inside because you don't hear a lot of young people coming together and celebrating unless it's, unless it's uh, secular music. So he's drawn inside, he goes inside, and here they're talking about a different spirit, the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit. He's drawn forward, and at the end of the service, a Baptist preacher gives an invitation. He comes to the front and receives Christ as his Lord and Savior. 
And so he goes home, he's excited, he knows his parents are going to be thrilled. <laughs> Walks in and he said, Mom, I met Jesus today. He's 18 and he's all excited. And they said, how could you go against everything our family has stood for? How could you go everything against everything we believe? You have a choice. If you choose that path, you'll have no part with this family. But if you continue... We would like to train you in the priesthood. We would like you to be this next generation Santero. So choose. Are you going to choose God? Or are you going to choose the spiritual world that you've been raised in? He was thrown out of the house when he, he said, God chose me. And so he had nowhere to go. He ends up back at the pastor's house. For four years, he never saw his family. He was raised by the pastor discipled by him and the pastor used him to minister and to lead the youth group and to begin to do evangelism door-to-door visitation and at the end of the four years uh, while he's in the pastor's home and working with the youth group what do you find in, in youth groups young men and young ladies he found a girl that just captured his heart and uh they dated, probably a long dating relationship, month at least, <laughs> got married. A year later, they had a baby boy. And while the mother would have nothing to do with Rodolfo Suarez, she wanted to meet her grandson. So she invited them back, five years that he hadn't seen his mother. Went back, and that little baby held in its grandmother's arms literally wrapped its hand, not literally, but wrapped its hand around her heart, softened her heart. And after spending the day with his grandmother and with her son and her new daughter-in-law, she said, why did you leave? Why did you make that decision? Why did you stand against the family? Because the God I serve is a living God. And light penetrates darkness. And so he shared the gospel message, the good news of how God had changed his heart, his life, and his mother received Christ. And the next, over the next week, as he came back and visited next his father, then his brothers and sisters, and in the next six months, this spirit ascender dedicated to Satan worship, a third of that congregation accepted Christ. Neighborhood church sponsors both those men. That man up in the mountains, uh, Michael, his name is, and Rodolfo Suarez, and you've invested in these men, and they, on average, plant a new church every two years. Light is penetrating darkness in Cuba, and that is multiplied by over 100 times through the 100-plus pastors, church planters, young people like Rodolfo, like Michael, that you're supporting. God bless you, and thank you. So exciting. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 1. Start in verse 4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, his disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we reflect on what we've heard so far and the word that, that you speak to us through the book of Acts now, we pray that you would give us understanding of how you desire to work in the world. That you would encourage us as we hear stories of how you are working in the world and as we hear stories of how you began to work uh, in this new church in the book of Acts, we pray that you would fire us up to see you do those things around us today. Think of those disciples on that hillside watching Jesus ascend and wondering what next. And, and sometimes we wonder that. We don't know what you have for us. We would love to see you do amazing things, transforming communities and nations and people in front of our eyes. And, and we, we admit that sometimes we don't know how to best see you do that. And so we pray now that you would. And we pray that as we think through these first few chapters of the book of Acts that you will help us to see um, how you work in bringing your kingdom to this earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you're one of the disciples and you watch Jesus ascend into heaven <laughs> and then he's gone. And you think, now what? You're all alone. And Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And, and so you kind of are waiting around for the Holy Spirit and yet you don't really know what that would look like when he comes. Is he another person? Are you going to be able to tell? Can you feel him? Can you see him? How do you know when he gets there? Will you know? I remember I used to go fishing when I was a kid, and I'd always say, Dad, how do I know if there's a fish on the line? If he said, you'll know. I thought, well, how will I know? And he would just say, you'll know. I'm sure Jesus would say that to his disciples. You'll just know. Trust me. And yet they're standing there on this hillside, and he floats away, or maybe he darts away. I don't know how he got away, but he... He ascends to his throne in heaven and he disappears. At some point, he kind of transfers between realities and he's gone. And they're on this hillside and his words are echoing in their minds. Do not leave Jerusalem. You will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples go back to Jerusalem, to the place that they've been for the last 40 days, probably, hanging out in the upper room, and, and they would spend time with one another, they'd pray with one another, they kind of walk through some administrative stuff at the early church, and, and, and they're sitting there, and they're not leaving Jerusalem, and they're waiting for the gift that the Father had promised, the promised Holy Spirit, and then one day he shows up. And Luke tells us in his book that the room that, starts, that they're in starts to shake like an earthquake and this mighty wind comes through and all of a sudden these things start coming that look like flames, like little tongues of fire and they separate over the people and something is happening. The Holy Spirit is coming and they know it. And no one's sitting there and thinking, I wonder if this is it. 
And all of a sudden people stand up and they start speaking these different languages or hearing the word of God in their own languages because as this amazing thing is happening, people who are in Jerusalem hear the ruckus and they come down the hill and up onto the upper hill and they see what's happening and all of a sudden these people from all over the world are hearing the word of God being proclaimed and it's an amazing thing where they go back into their cities and they'll bring the gospel there. And Peter stands up, Peter who denied Jesus, who had been humbled in a major way and then restored by Jesus, stands up in front of that crowd and says, let me tell you what's happening. He probably didn't prepare that sermon because he probably had no idea what was about to happen. And yet he gets up there and he proclaims, he witnesses what they were seeing and what he saw in Jesus and explains to them that the kingdom of God had arrived. And thousands, 3,000 are added to their number on that day. They cling to one another. This new church is formed, right? It's there. There's no going back. You can't undo the Holy Spirit coming. You, you can't dissolve and say, okay, we don't really have a plan here, so just go back home. The people just start clinging to one another because something new has happened, but they don't really know what it is yet. And so they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking bread with one another, to praying with one another. And they were filled with awe, and people were joining their community day after day after day after day. And they were still in Jerusalem. Peter and John would still go to the temple and pray, and the people would gather in the Jewish synagogues and the Jewish temple, and they would pray there, and they didn't really know anything better. And one day, as John and Peter are going up to the temple steps, they see a man who is, cannot walk. He's lame. And, and he looks, and he asks them for money, and they say, well, we don't have any money, but we've got something better. Get up and walk. And this man stands up, and he's healed. And he creates such a commotion that people start gathering around. And Peter, again, has nothing to do besides just to witness what, what it, to Jesus and what he had seen and said, okay, here's what happened. Jesus was, was killed on the cross by, by help of sinful men and you guys. And then God raised him from the dead. And now the spirit has come and the kingdom is breaking through. And he testifies about Jesus. And people start following Peter and following John. But then the religious leaders catch wind of it and they try to stop it. They pull Peter and John aside and they take him into prison, the temple guard. Kind of like if you see Gene going around in the, the cart outside like the security truck. Those guys showed up. And they take Peter and John and they throw him into the prison and then come pull him out the next morning and say, what is going on? And they're like, well, we we're just testifying about Jesus who's transforming the world. And they said, okay, well, don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> and Peter says, well, we, we can't stop talking about it. Because we need to listen to God and obey him. And they kind of slap him on the wrist and said, just stop talking about it. And they send them on their way. But they didn't stop talking about it. Crazier stuff started happening. This couple joins the church and they lie to the apostles and God kills them on the spot. And people start to hear that, okay, if you go against these people, you'll die. And everyone gets really, really scared. And the believers were still gathering together in that Solomon's colonnade, but outsiders wouldn't join them because it was scary now, because people were dying when they didn't truly believe it. And yet this power just started coming out of the apostles that they couldn't explain and they weren't doing on purpose. They didn't mean for Ananias and Sapphira to die, it just happened. And, and then they started, in a sense, to leverage that power, and the people started realizing that if they came to the apostles, they could find healing there. 
So people were bringing their sick, bringing their hurting to the apostles and finding healing. People, as the apostles were walking through the temple courts, would kind of catch themselves under Peter's shadow, hoping that if his shadow passed over them, they would be healed from their ailments. And all the while, the religious leaders are starting to get even more nervous. This is the kind of stuff that happened with Jesus. They thought they had squashed that thing. But the power's back. And so they gather up Peter again and the the apostles again and they yell at them again and they say, you've got to stop doing this. But they said, we can't stop. We can't stop testifying to what Jesus is doing and has done. And so just like with Jesus, people start (laughs) making up stories to try to squash the thing. There's this man named Stephen And he was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. He was a servant leader in the church there in Jerusalem of of Jesus. And and rumors started to spread that Stephen was was an insurrectionist, that he was preaching some false theologies, all that kind of stuff. The same kind of stuff that happened with Jesus. And so they bring Stephen in and make him stand trial. And it's like Jesus' false trial where they have all these people that are testifying and they're lying and, and yet Stephen is not really defending himself. He, he gets up to speak and he says, let me tell you the story of God's people. And he talks through Moses and he talks through the Old Testament and the prophets and, and he lands on something that's not very politically correct. He says, okay, here's the story of the Old Testament. You people always resist the Holy Spirit. You kill all the prophets, you destroy the work of God, and you've done it again to Jesus. And the people get so mad at Stephen that they start covering their ears and screaming, we're not going to listen to the story about Jesus. Stop testifying to what Jesus had done. And they grab rocks and they begin to stone Stephen to death. And as Stephen is dying, he, he forgives his attackers. And he sees Jesus and then goes to be with him. And when they squash Stephen, the church just scatters. You know, it's like stepping on a really big bug and the guts go everywhere. (laughs) And there was a man there when Stephen died named Saul. And he was egging the whole thing on. He was giving approval to his death. And Saul was a man who was a persecutor of the church. The problem, though, was that these people who got scattered... They didn't die. You know, Stephen died, but they just squirted out into all the other places as they ran away from Jerusalem, and they brought this testimony about Jesus with them wherever they went. So when they went into Samaria and they started sharing the gospel in Samaria, now people in Samaria are getting saved. When they start walking down the road away from Jerusalem, they run into people from other countries, and those people get saved and baptized. And the church, as it's being squashed into the world, the world is being transformed. Nothing can stop this thing. It was like one of those like really caustic poisons that when you drop it, it bur- bursts through the floor into the next level of the floor. I'm thinking about Breaking Bad now. And then the next level of the floor and the next level of the floor. And the next. You just couldn't stop the disciples. Wherever you squished them, wherever you threw them, they just started transforming in a good way the society where they, where they landed. And yet Paul or Saul was going around and he was trying to do everything he could to mop up this mess and destroy the church. He persecuted from house to house anyone who witnessed and testified about Jesus of Nazareth. And yet one day as Saul was walking down the street, Jesus showed up. And it's kind of one of the farthest times in the Bible you see the red letters again. And Jesus kind of appears in the clouds and stops him and blinds him and says, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And, and Jesus grabs a hold of Saul and says, I'm going to use you to lead these people that you're trying to destroy. And as the church continues to grow, and as Saul is converted, we hear less and less of these people trying to stop the church, and we hear more and more of the church being an unstoppable force in the culture, in Judea and all of Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We think a lot about what we might do to change our culture, what we can do to transform the people around us, maybe in our families or in our workplace or wherever we go. And the recipe we see in Acts 1.8 is a very simple one. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So he'll do the work, not us. And you will be my witnesses wherever you go, whether it's in Jerusalem or Judea, Samaria, or the ends of the earth. What we see in those first chapters of Acts is people who really didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have a plan. No strategic objectives. They were figuring it out as they went. But they knew that they saw something amazing. They'd been transformed by an amazing God. And so they just were telling people about it. And as the Holy Spirit worked with their testimony about what Jesus had done, he changed everything. Paul says in his later writings that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel, the story about Jesus is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. You hear a story about a man who's saved out of Santeria, and he comes back to his family, and he shares the gospel, and there's power there. He didn't twist his parents' arms. He didn't take a class on how to evangelize better and then try again really hard. He just, one time he came and he shared the gospel, and the gospel transformed them. Because when the Holy Spirit mixes with the story that he wrote, he does amazing things. And if our culture is going to change, if our lives are going to change, if the people around us are going to change, there probably isn't going to be much different than that original story that happened in the first century that's happening today in Cuba and that's happening everywhere that God is working today. The Holy Spirit, through his people, bring the story of Jesus, his death and resurrection to a world that needs him. And the Spirit does amazing things as we witness to the one who saved us. And that's why Jesus reminds us through something like communion to keep that gospel story so close to our hearts. Because the gospel is powerful in our own hearts. When we wander in, in, into sin or when we wander into trying to be super righteous to earn God's favor, we lose track of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose to new life. And so when we come and we take this bread and we dip it in this cup and we eat of it, we remember what he did, that our lives about him and like Jesus said, unless you eat your, my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. I need to be in you, and we're reminded of that. But communion always also reminds us that when we go out into the world and we bring this story of Jesus, that is what transforms people. The Holy Spirit, through our words as we tell them about him, and when the gospel is close to our hearts, it pours out of our mouths. And Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So tonight as we take communion, remember the gospel. Remember the one who conquered death on your behalf, 
who died for your sins, but he also conquered death itself, and the grave could not hold him. And he freed you to go and testify of what he's done in your life and what he did on the cross and in the empty tomb. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion, and we'll sing together. Father, we read your scriptures, and we see your kingdom breaking through into this world, and we admit we want so badly to see you working in our lives and around us, and so often we stray from what you prescribe to us, that we are to be people who are filled with your spirit, sharing your story, and, and when that happens, amazing results transpire. You bring people from death to life. You bring people out of addiction and out of the grave. You reconcile families together. You turn someone that's going one direction to coming back towards you in a totally different direction. You free us and you free people as we simply respond in faith to the story of what you did for us in sending your son to die and rise on our behalf. Thank you that your son has ascended. Thank you that he is seated at your right hand. Thank you that he is reigning over this earth. We look forward to the day when his reign is complete, when every knee bows and every tear is wiped away and this world is absolutely yours. And yet until that day, we pray that we would proclaim your kingdom so that folks would be saved from death and into your marvelous light. As we take communion tonight, let us remember your presence and remember your gospel as we remember your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional 613 messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.